Please turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. In the early Christian centuries, the church was terribly persecuted. The emperor of Rome, Diocletian, had a coin struck which still remains, bearing the inscription, the name of Christian being extinguished. In Spain, two monumental pillars were raised on which were written, Diocletian, for having extended the Roman Empire in the east and west and for having extinguished the name of Christians. Diocletian, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. Well, he didn't extinguish it, though he tried. Oh, where are kings and empires now of old that went and came? But, Lord, thy church is praying yet a thousand years the same. We have uh, in the story of the Exodus, which we've been following these weeks, uh, the movement out of the uh, land of Egypt toward the promised land, and then the effort of Pharaoh to recover what he's lost. And this is uh, counted here in the way that God frustrates him in his attempt. You have the departure from the land and its commemoration starting in chapter 12 and verse 30. Where it says, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Here we have what secured their deliverance, namely the tenth plague that God sent on the nation of Egypt, demonstrating that he was the true God and leading to remove his people from there. As he had said to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? By He sends as the tenth plague the angel of death. And the angel is to go into every home and slay the eldest son. But God provided the way to escape that judgment. If you took a lamb and on the 14th day of the seventh month, you put his blood on the doorpost of your home. And then when the angel of death came at midnight, he would see the blood and he would pass over that home. And this being the night of the Passover as it came to be known. And well, <clears throat> Pharaoh's son is killed. In all, of, in all of Egypt, you have virtually every son where every house where a son has been killed. And Pharaoh says, let's let them go. Get out. Take your herds. Take your flock. Take your little one and leave. That secured their departure. Now, there was a spoiling of the Egyptians that accompanied this. When God told Abraham, oh, six, seven hundred years before, your descendants will be uh, servants in a land uh, <clears throat> not their own, and uh, I will then raise up a leader. And uh, he will lead them out with great substance. I will judge that nation. And they will come out with great substance. How can a slave come out with substance? Well, notice in uh, verse 35, 
It says, The children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. They borrowed, a better translation would be, they asked the Egyptians, of the Egyptians, jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in uh, the sight of the Egyptians so that they gave to them such things as they required. And they spoiled the Egyptians. Uh, what is... Uh, as this, as this group moves out, incidentally, it's, it's a huge group. And notice in verse 37, the size of it. The children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children, maybe 2 million. I've been present uh, where 3 million people were all gathered together in Seoul, Korea, 1980. Here were 2 million. That was a huge number of people, just people as far as you could see as I stood on a platform there and looked at that. Well, uh, here's this huge movement. What's the meaning of it? What's the significance of it beyond the fact that God removes Israel from Egypt and establishes them as a nation in their own land, the promised land in time? Well, as we said last week, a week before, God is picturing here the way of salvation. They were delivered from judgment, and judgment hangs over all of our heads. We are all guilty before God. And their condition in Egypt pictured the state of the unsaved person. Well, they were delivered from judgment, that angel of death, through the blood of the Lamb, the Passover Lamb. The New Testament says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, or behold the Lamb of God, talking about Jesus. Uh, He's the real lamb whose blood would secure us from judgment when applied to our hearts. Uh, He was the one that God sent to be a substitute. Uh, That lamb pictured the idea of an innocent third party, uh, their guilt being laid on him and his blood being shed because that's what they deserved for rebelling against the holy God. Jesus, God the Son, came into the world, lived under the law, kept it perfectly, assumed our guilt, uh, true man, true God, was punished, underwent the wrath of God on the cross. Not just physical suffering, but the anguish of damnation. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was experiencing what we would have experienced in hell on the cross. Not for what he'd done, but for what we've done. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost and give his life a ransom for many. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, so that was God's plan where he could, he could forgive man and yet be just. He doesn't overlook our sin. It's made payment. He made payment in the person of his son. Louis Pasteur, his co-worker, was... Uh, in co-working the demonstration of what was called the germ theory. You remember Pasteur proved that uh, even though you can't see them, that they're germs and uh, that life doesn't originally, it doesn't just, uh, life does not spontaneously generate. Life can only be begotten by life. And uh, that while you can't see uh, these germs, they are there, but if you kill all these germs, if you boil it, heat it to a certain degree that kills them all, why then no life will generate in that medium. 
So we have pasteurization of milk, going back to Louis Pasteur. He proved life doesn't spontaneously generate. You kill all the life in a given medium and then uh, put a cap on it, no new life will generate. It's free from germs. Well, as part of demonstrating uh, his uh, germ theory, he had a, an associate, Dr. Felix Rue, a Jewish doctor in Paris. And uh, Pasteur was uh, disapproved by the medical association, and he was exiled. He didn't go far. He went to a woods outside of Paris where he secretly hid out and built a laboratory and continued his experiments. And Dr. Rue took 20 horses to that laboratory and invited scientists and doctors surreptitiously from the city of Paris to go out and watch the experiment. Dr. Rue's daughter, a granddaughter, had died of black diphtheria. There was an epidemic. And when they got out there, he opened a steel vault and he took out a pail that was full of diphtheria germs. There were enough germs in there to kill the whole nation. And he took a swab, he swabbed in front of these scientists and doctors and nurses the nostrils and the tongues of those 20 fine horses. And then everyone observed for the next several days. The horses got sick, developed a high fever. One by one they died and looked like they were going to all die. And uh, so most of the scientists went on back to Paris, got tired of waiting. One horse lying on the ground on the verge of death. Dr. Ruth told the orderly, if there's any movement at all, any change, any decrease in temperature, you wake me up. 2 a.m. in the morning, the orderly shook him. The temperature had gone down a half degree. By morning, it had gone down two degrees. By night, the horse was over the fever. Dr. Rue gathered the remaining scientists around, took a sledgehammer, and struck the horse between the eyes. They drew all the blood out of the horse's veins, rushed to Paris as fast as could, forced their way into the Memorial Hospital there in the center of Paris, where 300 babies had diphtheria and were separated from others in the hospital. And they forced their way in, past guards, past the superintendent, injected those babies with the blood of the horse. And all of those babies, except three, totally recovered. They were saved by the blood of the overcomer. The one who had overcome the disease, developed the antibodies to fight the disease, and now his blood saved them. Well, we're saved by the blood of the overcomer. And Jesus Christ overcame hell and death and sin and guilt for us. And when we put our faith in him, we're saved by the blood of the Lamb. He would die on the very day that that Passover lamb was sacrificed. He was the Lamb. Well, uh, that's, that's the significance of this. God drawing a picture in history of how it works, how men are saved. What he was going to do 1,400 years later in the person of his son. He, uh, of course, uh, we see where they not only were delivered from death, but they spoil the people, and they are enriched as they come out of bondage there. When you uh, became a Christian, not only was your guilt removed by the blood of the Lamb, but you were enriched. All of a sudden, you uh, were a joint heir with Jesus Christ. 
Now, you are adopted into the family of God. My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Though exiled from home, yet still I may sing, All glory to God, I'm the child of a king. We're enriched. And uh, God set up for this to be commemorated. They needed to remember what he had done and how he had done it. That God had intervened and had delivered them. It was extremely important. Chapter 12, verse 42. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is the night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel and all their generations. And he set up institutions for remembering this, the observance of the Passover feast uh, with its unleavened bread. Chapter 13, verse 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and so on. Verse 8, Thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of what the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. He had it where every firstborn uh, of animal, every firstborn uh, uh, man, uh, male child, was to be set apart unto the Lord. The firstborn animal to be sacrificed. The firstborn child to be a priest unto the Lord. So they'd remember what happened in connection with the firstborn. Their deliverance was to be kept before them. That was the most important thing in the history of the nation, that God had delivered them from Egypt in this way. Well, God has delivered us, and it, the experience is to be kept before us. He's done it by His Son, so He has us remember the death of His Son in the Lord's Supper. And every Sunday we remember the resurrection of His Son that he rose on the first day of the week. And we're to constantly look at life through that, see everything in relation to that. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, Newton was a slaver, and God saved him, changed his life, made him a minister. Newton kept over his mantle, engraved on his mantle, Remember, thou wast a bondsman in the land of Egypt. Don't you ever forget what you were and what God has done for you and how he did it. God would have us remember that and to look at all of life through that. But we have the departure from the land and then you have the deliverance at the sea and its commemoration. In uh, verse 21 of chapter 13, you have uh, the Lord leading them. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. We've seen the atomic bomb mushroom cloud. Well, something like that led them. God manifested his presence with a column-like cloud. They needed this. He would guide them through this awful wilderness where the temperature was 140 degrees in the daytime and 30 degrees at night. They would have burned up or they would have frozen to death if it hadn't been for that cloud. That cloud would give shade by day, and it was warm at night, a pillar of fire by night. God led them. Where did he lead them? Notice where he didn't lead them. In verse 17 of chapter 13, it says that God led them not through the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest peradventure the people turn back when they see war and return to Egypt. 
he, the, he knew they weren't up to war yet. They needed to uh, gain their strength. He proportions their trials to their strength. But notice where he did lead. In uh, verse 18 of chapter 13, he led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, the King James says. Well, actually, the original Hebrew doesn't say Red Sea. The original Hebrew says Reed Sea, R-E-E-D, or Sea of Reeds. The Hebrew is Yom Sup. And no one knows what that Sea of Reeds was. They translate it Red Sea in a number of translations because they think maybe it's the Red Sea. That's about where they think the root of the Exodus was. No one knows exactly where the root was. May not have been the Red Sea. Another large lake there is Lake Timsa, right north of the Red Sea. That might well be where he led them. Looks like uh, that might be a possibility. There's another lake, Lake Menzla, about where the Suez Canal is now. Well, the use that the theological liberal makes of the fact that it's the Reed Sea. When I was in seminary, I was in a seminary that was in a process of going theologically liberal. In my Old Testament class, we used a book, Understanding the Old Testament, by Bernard Anderson, dean of the theological school and professor of biblical theology at Drew University. And in it, uh, he speaks of the fact that uh, this is the Reed Sea and not the Red Sea. <clears throat> and uh, he says, Notice this account of the crossing of the Reed Sea, probably at the eastern shore of Lake Timsa, occurred when an east wind drove the waters back. It says that in Scripture. This happening is not impossible in this marshy area where the waters are shallow. As a matter of fact, it's been witnessed at other times. The miracle was that it happened at a particular time with a particular meaning. I'm reminded, uh, in other words, he says, you know, it's just real shallow right there, and they crossed over. I'm reminded of the guy who, a young Christian, and, uh, and he read the story of the Exodus, and he said, Praise the Lord! Isn't that great the way God just opened those waters and and let them go through on dry land. Fantastic. And this fellow said, oh, well, son, don't get so excited. Actually, it's a real shallow area, and, and it wasn't all that kind of miracle that you think it was. It, was. it wasn't like that. He says, praise the Lord. Real shallow, huh? Yeah, praise the Lord. Well, what are you so excited about now? Well, the way God drowned all those Egyptians in an inch of water. Man, that's great. <laughs> Well, uh, in this story here by the, uh, Dr. Anderson, he says uh, there, there are considerable embellishments to what really happened. Uh, the idea of it happening at uh, the rod dividing the waters so that they stood up like walls on both sides. These embellishments of the account show how the story was reworked by later generations as this memorable event was retold and rehearsed. That's typical of the way a theological liberal handles the scriptures, always in the interest of calling in question the miraculous. But uh, God uh, divides the waters here, as Moses records, and there's a wall of water on each side. And as they go through, uh, they go through this on dry land. Tremendous. Pharaoh has 
has uh, chased them. It turns out the reason God led them the way he did was to bring out something in Pharaoh's heart and to further deliver them from Pharaoh. In chapter 14, verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and encamp at this particular point by the sea. Before it, you shall encamp by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Pharaoh couldn't believe that he'd let them go. He determines to recapture them. And uh, verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all of his hosts that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Uh, so uh, he pursues in verse 8. Uh, it says, he pursued after the children of Israel. And verse 10, when Pharaoh drew nigh and he has his chariots and all, uh, the Israel lifted up their eyes. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them. They were sore afraid. And they cried out unto Moses, Is it, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you lead us, led us out here to die? But God... Uh, Let's us get into situations where he's our only hope so that he tests our faith, but also that he shows his sufficiency. In verse 13 of chapter 14, Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, great biblical word, fear not. Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you shall see them no more forever. Great promise. And then God uh, makes provision in verse 15. The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Lift up thy rod, stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it. And the children shall go on dry ground throughout the midst of the sea. And verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And after they cross over and Pharaoh proceeds to send his chariots down into this uh, chasm through the sea, and the wheels bogged down, and then God has Moses, after all the Israelites asleep on the other side, to again stretch out his Rod In verse 27, Moses stretched forth his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to his strength. And the Egyptians fled, and the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. What's, a, what's being pictured for us about salvation? You know, when, when we think of being delivered, it's not just a matter of delivering us from the guilt of our sin, which will send us to hell. But it's also a matter of being delivered from the dominion of sin. Pharaoh pictures Satan. And uh, Satan's power over us is broken when we become Christians. He would do anything to recapture us, and he tries desperately to recapture us. But God foils his efforts. Uh, the dominion of flesh, our sinful nature, is broken when we become Christians. We still have a sinful nature, but the power of it is broken. And now if we'll walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We won't be dominated and controlled by our sinful nature as we rely on the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. 
this overthrow of these enemies, not just the removal of guilt, protection from the angel of death, but the overthrow of the enemies is picturing that powerful present deliverance from the dominion of sin in our lives. Also, uh, it pictures for us the fact that oftentimes when we have our backs to the sea, when we're in some desperate situation, that God will undertake for his own. He'll open a way through the sea. I was reading the biography of Darlene Diebler Rose. She was a missionary and uh, in New Guinea. She was taken captive uh, during World War II by the Japanese. She was placed in a concentration camp. She was terribly tortured. And she records in here how time and time again God inter- intervened in miraculous ways, literally, uh, to... Uh, deliver her from very, very difficult situations. Just uh, one, one thing, and you'd have to read the book to appreciate how an amazing thing it was, but she needed desperately some fruit. She, her body was decaying, and she needed fresh fruit. She had all kinds of diseases, and she asked God if he would just somehow get her a banana. Uh, she'd seen some out of her cell window, and yet she... She thought about it. It was really utterly impossible for her to get a banana. And uh, she thought of all the possible ways it could happen, and there was just no way it could happen. The next day, she said, I heard the guard coming back and knew he was coming for me. Struggling to my feet, I stood ready to go. He opened the door, walked in, and with a sweeping gesture laid at my feet, bananas. They're yours, he said. They're all from Mr. Yamachi. I sat down in stunned silence and counted them. There were 92 bananas. Lord, forgive me. I'm so ashamed. I couldn't trust you enough to even get one banana for me. Just look at them. They're almost 100. Well, uh, God opens a way. You may be in a very difficult situation in your marriage, in your job, whatever it is, and uh, you're desperate. Well, God is a living God, and he has a way of providing a path through the sea as we trust him and look to him. They they commemorate this great deliverance with a song, the song of Moses. In chapter 15, verse 1, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. They sing this song exalting God's attributes, his power and his mercy and so on. Well, we need to keep before us, just as they did, the great deliverance that God has wrought for us through the blood of the Lamb. Uh, We used the song a little earlier, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. Think of it. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransom, heal, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing? That ought to just constantly be before us every day. That ought to come rolling out of us. Remember, it's through the blood of the overcomer that we can overcome in our trials and overcome our spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember that God can undertake no matter what our situation. Of course, if you're not a Christian, remember that angel of death. Very real. That judgment. God's judgment. 
You never know when that angel of death will come to you and you'll stand before a holy God. Adnaram Judson was a young man who went to college. He and his roommate uh, lived a wild life. This is about 1800. Uh, he uh, made fun of the things of God. He finished and had a job. He would ride across uh, New England selling things and so on. And One time he's on horseback, a young man, and riding across New England. Nightfall came. There was an inn. He stopped in the inn and asked for a room. They said, there's only one room left. We don't believe you want it. Why? Well, the man in that room, the next room is dying of tuberculosis and his screams are terrible. You don't want that room. He said, I'm so tired I can sleep through anything. Give me that room. There in the night, he heard this man screaming out for mercy to God and then cursing God. And then during the night, the voice stopped. The next morning, he said, what about the man? He said he died during the night. What was his name? Ernest. It was his roommate, his college roommate. He got on his horse and rode off. And every time the horse's hoofs hit, he'd think dead. Then he'd think lost. Dead. Lost. He turned his horse around. He went back, entered Andover Seminary. But God converted after he was in seminary. Received Christ as his Savior. Went to Burma. First, first American missionary to go out from this country. Went to Burma. And labored there very effectively during his life. Lost. Dead. That angel of death. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed before the Lord, as there's some sea at your back and some enemy pursuing, you're in a very difficult circumstance, look to the Lord. Trust Him to open a way somehow. Don't despair. Fear not. Trust Him. If you've never really turned to Christ and trusted the blood of the overcomer, do that now. Surrender your will and put your trust in him. Pray like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for having your skull crushed, for undergoing death for me, for my guilt, that I might overcome through your blood. Lord, I do trust you now as my Savior, and I surrender to you as my Master. Come into my life. Amen.